There's some people you meet in the world who make you believe you can personally help change it. McEbling is one of those people. Named one of the top 50 most creative people in the world and the recipient of awards including the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year Award, Mick's the founder of Not Impossible Labs. The company uses technology to find solutions to problems, one person, one solution at a time. It was founded on Mick's core belief that nothing is impossible forever. Besides being an entrepreneur, film producer, philanthropist, and technology trailblazer, Mick's a public speaker, author, fellow podcaster, dad, and he's someone who's made it his life's mission to help people and have a lot of fun along the way. I caught up with Mick at his office in LA to learn more about Not Impossible Labs. We learned about the work they're doing, like helping deaf people experience music and using sunglasses as the base for a tool to help people with ALS communicate again. But we also got into so much more. We talked about Mick's outlook on hackers, fear, failure, risk, how technology can be used for good, and how you can do the impossible. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Mick's an incredible speaker. He's done a TED Talk and is presented at some of the top companies in the world. So let's just dive right in and hear straight from Mick about how his career started and the genesis of Not Impossible Labs. I want to note that there's a few passionate slang words that cause this episode to be marked explicit, so just be mindful when listening near kids. You're full of wild ideas. You've made the most wild ideas ever happen. Let's just go to your background. You said you didn't study tech and innovation in school, but yet you do so much with tech and innovation today. Well, it's funny. Our mission statement at Not Impossible is change the world through technology and story. But if you really break it down, the story part is the part of the world that I understand. The technology for me is just this, it's a vehicle, right? It's a, it's a tool to actually go out and create things to, to, to address what we call absurdities, which are just things that we see in the world where we say, that's ridiculous, that shouldn't exist. Um, but the story part is the part that I understand from my background. But then you got into animation for in production for mm-hmm. big Hollywood movies and mm-hmm. TV shows. Talk to me about that, because that's interesting. Well, like most amazing things in life, it happened completely on accident. I was, my wife and I just came back. We'd just got married. We went over uh, to Europe. When we came back for the holidays, we slept on a friend of ours floor just for like a couple of days. We crashed in Venice Beach before we went home to our parents' house for the holidays. And uh, he was working in animation and in this new crazy program that we'd never heard of before called After Effects. I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's this animation program called After Effects. And I said, well, what does it do? He said, it, it makes things move. And I'm like, that's amazing. How do, you, how do you make money doing it? And he said, oh, people just call me. And I said, people just call you? And he said, yeah. I said, that's a stupid way to like make money or think about just wait for things to happen. You actually have to make things happen. And he said, well, what would you do? And I said, well, I would make the phone ring. I wouldn't wait for the phone to ring. And he said, all right, well, how about this? We were supposed to go surfing that day. And he said, let's flip a coin. Heads, we go surfing. Tails, there's this conference out in Las Vegas that I know there's a bunch of people who who give workout for this kind of stuff. It was this big television conference. So we said, if, you know, heads, we go surfing. Tails, we go to the conference. And so he flipped the coin, landed on his wrist, and it was heads, go surfing. And I stared at it 
and I reached over and I flipped it over to tails and I said, I'm going to Vegas, which is a big deal to skip out on surfing. So I flew to Vegas and I came back with a bunch of work and that kind of launched my career and that launched that company. That company ended up being one of the biggest companies in the animation business and it kind of set the path of what I was doing. But it was completely, it was, it was on accident, but with intent. I guess, you know, I think, which I think is key in life. So to put a visual on the animation stuff you've done, if you've ever seen a movie and someone's been texting and then the text is over the picture and the, the stuff we did, and I got a chance that my, I grew, I did that. And then I started doing it for myself. And then I started representing lots of amazing animators and one of the animators, the film you're talking about is Stranger Than Fiction. And there was this whole graphic sequence that became just a like a like a cornerstone of of modern day graphics and animation. And we did the James Bond main title sequence for Quantum of Solace, which is this, you know, there's only four entities in the history of James Bond who've ever made a main title sequence. It was a big deal. So Mick is not just a Hollywood guy. Like you accidentally got into Hollywood. You thrived in Hollywood with animation. And then you decide to do something a little different through your connections and you meet this guy named Tempt. Well, decide, I think it's a strong word. Okay. You know, I think again, like, like great things in life, it was something that happened. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to make choices in life, but sometimes I think when things are presented to you, you, you get, it, it's an opportunity to walk through door number one or door number two. And, um, but you say yes to a lot of things. So like that coin flip, a story you just told is really mm -hmm. interesting. A lot of people would have just gone surfing instead right. of to Vegas. And you're right. like, no, let's see what happens. Yeah. Let's in, say in, yes. Intention, you know, as kind of corny and, and kind of dad advice as it is, the, the harder you work, the luckier you, what is it? The harder I work, the luckier I get, you know? And I think that you have to just make intentional choices, but also be open to kind of how things present themselves, you know, and not, not feel like that there's a, a path like there's, there's not a carved path on the way that life works. I think there's indications of how life has happened and things, the way things have worked in the past. And you could take that as information to put into your cake batter to figure out how you're going to bake the cake of your life. But I don't think that it always has to be that way. I think you can make choices to steer it in different directions. And if you think about some of the people that you are, um, probably most inspired by most of those people didn't follow a traditional path. So I think that that's, that's something that is important. It's, it's important in my life. It's important to how I convey what the potential future can be for people at Not Impossible or for my kids. And so. Well, thanks for saying this because the whole point of this podcast is to interview people who've taken a non-traditional path and taken this wild idea and made it a reality. So one of your first wild, I mean, you've had a lot of wild ideas, but one of the biggest wild ideas that kind of launched Not Impossible was the iWriter right. and meeting Tempt. Can you just tell us a little story? So, yeah, the, the hyper-condensed version of that story is that that is the origin of everything that I do now, Right. And if you back that up a little bit, the origin of that is with a really good friend of mine named Ubi Simpson, who we were surfing with today. And I met Ubi surfing in Costa Rica, just happened to be in the water. We hit it off. We stayed in touch. Uh, we became friends. My wife and I were about to go out on a date. He totally 
hijacked our date, took us to this art event. The art event was a fundraiser for this artist named Tony Tempt Kwan, who is this incredible graffiti artist who had ALS. His friends had come together to put a bunch, a bunch of their art on the wall that people could, could buy it and would raise money to take care of him. We were blown away by the, the love and the energy of the room. It was just like not your traditional gallery event. And that, that moment was this, that was the origin of non-impossible. Now, what really, if you now walk that out, that happened in the springtime, holidays roll around. And what we ended up doing was for my production company, the animation company, we would give gifts to our clients and we'd give them bottles of booze or baskets of things, tickets to things. But we decided that in this situation, and a lot of this came from my wife's input, she said, like, why do we give people stuff that they don't even care about? Why don't we make a donation to a charity on behalf of someone? So we made a donation to the Tempt One Foundation on behalf of our clients. And I sat down with his father and brother to give him the check. And I said, you know, here's, you know, I'd like to give you the check. Thank you so much. And we chatted for a second. I said, what are you going to use the money for? And they said, his brother said, I just want to talk to my brother again. I just want to be able to communicate with him. And I said, well, wait a second. I've seen news reports and read articles and seen things on YouTube about Stephen Hawking having this device where he moves his eyes and then the robot voice talks, the machine talks for him. Why doesn't he, Stephen Hawking has ALS, your brother has ALS, why don't you have that? He said, too expensive. He said, that's if you have money or insurance, we don't have either. And so- Attempt is like 34 when he got diagnosed. I don't even He's know. Young. I mean, at that moment when I was talking to him, he had been lying motionless in the bed for seven years. So I was just blown away. And that, that to me, and that's something that kind of the language of not impossible now, to me, that's absurd that you could live in Los Angeles, 13 miles away from where you and I are talking right now in Venice Beach. A dude is 13 miles away. We have a GMP greater than most developing nations. And that guy can only talk through a piece of paper with the alphabet written on it, whereas family and friends run their finger along the alphabet and he blinks when they get their finger gets to a letter. That's not right. That must have been so frustrating. Yeah, he said it was horrible. Like you could, he would blink at the wrong time. His brother would blink, blink at the wrong time. It was just like, you know. And so for me, staring at a father and a brother, I'm a father, I'm a brother. And I said, all right, that's absurd. I'm going to get you one of those. We're going to change the script here. I'm going to get you one of those Stephen Hawking machines. And they said, they looked at the check and they said, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not big enough. And I said, don't worry, I'm a producer. We'll figure out how to do this. Well, I'm going to, we'll bob and weave and cajole and coerce and do whatever we can. And they got really excited and I got really excited and they were like, oh, we're going to be able to talk to him again. And I got kind of caught up in the moment. I said, and you know what else we're going to do? Why don't we also figure out a way that if there's a device that allows him to move his eyes back and forth and that selects letters and then the robot talks, why don't we figure out how to hack that? And so the eyes move back and forth and then that tracks the tracks, the pupils. So it moves a cursor on the screen and he can draw again, but he can draw using his eyes. So rather than just selecting letters, his eyes, his eyes move the stylus or this, the proverbial paintbrush or pencil. And they said, you can do that. How did you think of that? Well, here's the deal. I didn't respond when they said you can do that. I was silent. And they took that as a yes. And so I was like, as soon as they walked out the door, I'm like, Oh, what the hell did I just do? You know, that's not, yeah. I'm, I'm way over my skis. And so then I ended up 
talking to people and networking with people and just meeting people. And, and that's one of the things I think that I learned from that, that particular moment was most of the times people don't know what the hell they're doing. Like the most incredibly gifted, brilliant people in the world, most of the time they're way over their skis. They're just confident enough to like, they're going to figure it out. Right. And so and I'm not putting myself in that category in any way, shape or form, but winging it and just kind of like, you know, that you fake it till you make it kind of thing is something that's real. It's so real. So I was like, all right, here we go. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm committing to it. And that was one of our mantras here, which is commit and then figure it out. And that mantra, I can't tell you, is so powerful for us because you see an absurdity. You see something that you go, that's ridiculous. That's not right. That shouldn't be that way. And then you say, all right, I'm going to do something about it. I don't know how, I don't know who, I don't know when, I don't know anything, but I can't as a human being sit by and just see that and just watch it take place. And so that's what we did. And so I brought all these brilliant people together. My wife and I and and my kids and I moved out of our house. They moved in, we pushed the tables and chairs against the wall and we hacked and made and went crazy for, you know, two and a half weeks. And, and I'm, my job was to, to be a producer, to keep them on schedule and get materials and feed them and, you know, kind of stick, but they were the brilliant ones in this, but building that team is something that producers do. And so that's what, that's what I realized was my spidey sense, my, my kind of superpower was not necessarily being the brilliant one, but being the one who could bring the brilliance into the same room and be able to kind of help to channel it along the way so that brilliant things and amazing things could happen. And so that's what happened. And after about two and a half weeks of no sleep, we took it to his room and unveiled it. And he had a gang of friends, a bunch of family and friends gathered downstairs in the parking lot. We set up, we broke into the used car parking lot. We set up a big gas generator with a massive projector connected to it, wireless signal back up to the room. And from his room with all his family and friends watching downstairs, we projected on the wall this artist drawing again for the first time in seven years. So you basically gave him a pair of sunglasses that were like eight bucks somewhere that you bought on Venice Beach. Yep. It was like a coat hanger. Yep. And what else did you- Z- Zip ties. And some zip ties. Some and duct tape. Duct tape and some code. And some code and, a, and an old web camera. And a web camera. And, and the f- web camera tracked his pupil. Like you focused, you take the web camera, mounted it to the wire, it focused back on the pupil. So as his eyes would move back and forth, that would track the pupil. Wow. So listen to that. Like he figured out a way to take an $8 pair of sunglasses, duct tape, coat hanger, and an old web camera and allow this guy to have a device that, how much is the Stephen Hawking device? Like thousands of bucks. Back it then was, it was like yeah, super crazy expensive. 20,000 bucks at least yeah. or more. And the team, the, the whole iWriter team was, that's what it was called the iWriter. We made this thing for less than a hundred bucks. Less than a hundred bucks with zero background in ocular technology or medicine. Yeah. But what drove everybody? was not what had to happen or not the what it was the fact that there was a dude that everybody wanted to help solve a problem for. And so it wasn't about, Oh, do you have an expertise in this? Do you have an expertise in this? Do you have an expertise in this? It was more, are you 
absolutely like passionate about solving this problem, yes, cool, you're qualified. You don't have to have any experience in it. You just are you just are you committed down to your core? We didn't say that. Those weren't the words that we used, but that was the group of people that were in that room. They just were come hell or high water, we're going to F and solve this. Like it's like there's a person on the other end of this. It's not, hey, let's make a device for all people with ALS. Then you can. It's easy to walk away from that because that the, the, there's not a name or a face or a. It's too big. It's way too big, right? And I think that's one of the other things that we do at Non Impossible. There's two two main things came out of the whole iWriter experience. One, well, lots of things came out of it. It was the birth of Non Impossible, but we realized that when you see something that's absurd, that you commit and then figure it out. But the other thing that was, and this is clearly our secret sauce, unless your last name is Gates or Buffett or you've got just endless cash to throw at problems and you can just, you know, just burn cash to get to a solution, which is if you got it, great, go solve problems. But for the rest, you know, the 99% of us who don't have that, if you, if you attack a problem for one person and solve it powerfully for that one person, that gives you the focus to be able to go through all the obstacles because you know there's someone on the other side of what that problem is. And then once you solve it, then you tell the story or spread it or start telling the world about it. And then that has the potential to help many people. So that's one of our, our underlying mantras here is help one, help many. This is one of my favorite things Mick said during our conversation. Help one, help many. It's something he says a lot, and it's so true. If you make a positive impact on one person, you might actually be able to use those same tools to help so many more people, and there's always a ripple effect. It's simple, but poignant advice I think we can all learn from. I think if you help someone else, I know when I help someone else, I'm just invested a little bit more fully, and my ego is out of it. If I'm mm-hmm. trying to do something for myself, it's it's hard. Yep. And then if I think about that person enough, I mean, there's more than one person like that person. So if you're listening to this podcast and you have a wild idea, this help one, help many model is so important to follow. So you didn't do just do this with the iRider. By the way, how many iRiders are there now? We don't know. We released open source, you know, so <sighs> people could make them as they want. And, and here's the thing about this. Walk through this, this exercise. I'm going to help all people with ALS. And it's like a Mad Lib. I'm going to help all people with fill in the blank. Now, imagine yourself walking away from that. Imagine yourself running into some obstacles, some insurmountable, what you see as insurmountable obstacles. You get busy, you get sick, you get a promotion, you know, you buy a house, you have a kid, whatever. All these different things happen to your life, right? Now, how does it feel when you walk away from that commitment? Okay, now. It's not a person, so. Not a person. Now say, I'm going to solve this for, I'm going to help Steve or Kim. Now, how do you feel when you walk away from Steve and Kim? And you look Steve and Kim in the eye and you say, "Mm, you know what? I'm so sorry. I got really busy at work. I'm not going to help you. It's a totally different emotion, right? So. Committing a human to human commitment, I think, is so much more powerful than a human to cause commitment because I don't care who you are. People don't like to be liars. People don't like to let other people down, whether you know them or not. And 
when you're searching for what you want to do with your life, I think if you have the ability to see somebody, anybody with a problem and to be able to reach out to them and do something to help that individual as, as small and as meaningless as that might sound, it's so powerful because it builds a confidence in you and it builds a, a stamina in you and it builds a, a belief in you. They're like, well, wait a second, I just did it for one. I'm going to do it for someone else. I'm going to do it for someone else and one to two, two to four, four to eight. And all of a sudden you start to see and you're like, this is something that has the potential like for you as an individual to be big. Now, there's there's a, a saying that I love that I I'll, whenever I give a talk, I was I was finished with the saying it's by Horace Mann and it's refuse to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Horace is breaking it down pretty clean. If you've done good in the world, you can go. If you haven't, you got to stick around a little bit longer and go do some good. You can go to your deathbed realizing I helped somebody, right? That's, you've made the world as small as it might sound, you've made the world a slightly better place. And as kind of trite or manipulative as the logic might be, imagine if every single person in the world helped one person. What happens? Everyone's helped. After the creation of the iRider, Mick was ready to continue this mission of helping one person to help many. So when he heard a story about a doctor in Sudan who had to do amputation surgeries because of all the bombings in the region, he knew he wanted to help. There was this young boy named Daniel who heard the bombers coming as they come every day. He wrapped his arms around a tree. The bomb went off not far from where he was. Because he was in an open field. He couldn't get somewhere. Yep. He was tending his family's goats and cows, right? And so he was in the middle of an open field. He wrapped his arms around a tree. The bomb ended up going off. It blew. It, it, his body was protected from the, the blast because of the tree. But because his arms were on the other side of the tree, it blew off his arms. And so I read this story and I see the picture of this armless 12-year-old boy and the first thing he said when he woke up was, if I could die, I would, because now I'm going to be such a burden to my family. Not woe is me, not poor me that I'm a double amputee, but I'm going to be a burden to my family. And so I read that and I was just, I was blown away by this doctor. I was just dumbfounded that this happened, that a 12 year old boy was, was armless due to a bomb. And his first thought wasn't about him. It was about his family. So that was a commit and figure out moment. And so we did the same thing we did with the iRider. My wife and kids and I moved out of the house. All these crazy people moved into our house. We started the hacking program. And the, by the way, just so we're clear, we failed so many times along the way. Everything looked like it was just in a dumpster fire. Things weren't working. Technology wasn't working. Our, our prototypes weren't working. Like this entire, the entire project was a series of failures that finally led to a success. So it's not, it was not like, oh yeah, oh yeah, let's go help this kid. It was so many issues along the way. But we went over and got into the refugee camp and we started the world's first 3D printing prosthetic lab. And this was, this was 2015 before, you know, before this was really accessible technology. And we made arms for Daniel. He was able to feed him. That's the boy's name. He was able to feed himself for the first time in two years, which was, he was so, stoked. So, so stoked. 
But then we left and it took us like three days to get back to L.A. And when we got back to L.A., uh, Dr. Tom sent us pictures of arms that were made by the people that we had trained. And so they were making arms for other people. It's like by the time you landed in L.A., five arms had already been built. Yeah. yeah. And now how many? Again, we don't know. You know, the, here's the thing about the, we we created this story around what's possible and that story went so big that people were popping up all over the place making arms for people and so for us we don't take credit for that but it shows the power of a story when people see wait a second if these guys can go over to a war-torn country where there's electrical surges and there's they're off the grid and they can make arms what if we do that for our own country See what I mean? Mick's literally helping change the world. His commitment to people and his willingness to ask for help, recruit others, and to try pretty much anything allows him to make a huge difference. When we come back, we'll get deeper into how Mick deals with the fear of failure and what's next for Not Impossible. Five years ago, REI took a stand. They closed their doors on Black Friday and paid all 14,000 employees to opt outside. And in that moment, a movement was born. Now, after five years of change, it's time for the movement to do more. This year, when REI closes their doors on Black Friday and sends employees out to opt outside, they opt to act. They opt to make the fight for life outdoors an everyday activity. And they want you to join. Meet REI outside this Black Friday to be part of a nationwide day of action, kicking off a year of change. Together, let's leave the world better than we found it. Find out more about how you can opt to act at REI.com forward slash opt outside. Making a choice to use his resources and time to change someone's life with something like the iWriter, which he did for Tempt, or to make a 3D printed arm, which he did for Daniel, that was a huge undertaking. I'm sure Mick had moments along the way where he wasn't totally sure it was going to work out. Failure. You talk about failure. You failed over and over again. I think what keeps people from doing these Wild ideas is fear of failure. Mm -hmm. How do you not have fear of failure? I would say you have fear of failure. Don't, don't stray away from that. That's, that's, don't let it deter you from moving forward, but know that fear of failure is just like breathing and you know, it's normal. If you're not afraid of failing, I don't think you're alive. Think, think of the most accomplished fill in the blank athlete, you know, scientists, doctor, there is a little failure like Jiminy Cricket behind them that's saying you can't do this, you can't do this. And it drives them forward. And I think that to stray away from failure, it's it's people. And, and look, OK, here's my rant. We live in a society now where everything is portrayed to be perfect, Right. It's flawless and I'm beautiful and I'm so happy. That's not reality. 
we're all sad at times. We all have fears at times. We're all happy at times. That's just the balance of life. To stray away from things because it's going to be hard or you're afraid, everybody has that. Every single human being on this planet has that. So you're doing not just yourself a disservice by not pursuing something because you're afraid it might not work, but you're doing the whole world a disservice. I get all fired up about that. No, this is good. So then what's your self-talk? Because I think the difference between your self-talk and someone who just doesn't go for it is the person who's afraid of failure and doesn't go for it starts beating themselves up the minute they fail. The minute you fail, you're like, okay, just get another shot. We're going to keep going. Or you say something. What is that? Uh, I'm thinking basketball here, but like, no, it's, it's, it's kind of like, why not? Right. Why not walk up to somebody and ask them out on a date? What's the worst thing that can happen? They're going to say, no, are you still alive? Yes. Okay, cool. Can you eat that day? Yes. Okay, cool. You're better off than the majority of the world. So you got a little, you know, little fear of, of rejection. Okay, cool. You say you're going to do something. You can't quite do it. You tried, you learned a lot from that. And maybe your attempt inspired other people to go do it. So here's one of the things we became obsessed about the concept of impossible. And here's the reality of impossible. Think about wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, look around. Can you see anything that wasn't impossible before it was possible? Answer? No. Every single thing, cars, chairs, these microphones that are in front of us, the clothes that we're wearing, the lights in the room, every single thing was impossible before it was possible. So the inverse of that is also true. If you base it, remember all the old SAT questions, right? The inverse of that is true. If everything that is possible today was impossible first, then that means if you base it on history, you base it on stats, you base it on data. If everything that was impossible or everything that's possible today was impossible first, then that means everything that's impossible today is on the trajectory, is on the path of becoming possible. There's no hocus pocus. I'm not trying to be all spiritual or guru-y or ooga booga. That's just straight history and data. So if that's the fact, if that's the reality, then our job in this, this like brief, like microscopic period that we're on this planet is just to do whatever we can to transition things from impossible to possible. And if you can't do it, great. Two, three generations from now, they're going to figure it out. But maybe something that you did contributed to that. What about when there's a financial risk? I find that's what keeps most people that email me from going for it. Right. The finances, they're scared. They're scared that they're going to like be completely broke and not know what to do next. It's real. You know, like you can't, none of the things that I'm saying, I don't, I don't want to be flippant about the things that I'm saying, but how committed are you? You know, if you're going to bitch and moan about your life and how unhappy you are, then change it or just keep bitching about it and be miserable and make everybody around you miserable. Right. If you're committed to being X, a writer, whatever it might be, go get a job at Starbucks at night. Like if you're that committed to it, go get a job at night, cut your stuff back, you know, do whatever you got to do, go back to eating ramen. But if your decision is, nope, 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 I did that in college or I did that before and I don't ever want to go back again. Cool. Then that's your decision. Don't torture yourself over it. If your decision is not eating ramen and working at a, you know, a night job so that you can do your stuff during the day or vice versa, then just Call it as it is. If that's more important, then that's more important. Or 
just say, I'm committed to doing this and I'm going to do whatever it takes to do it. And then maybe after a while, and then here's the reality. Maybe after a while you're like, you know what? I guess I'm not as committed to this as I thought I was. I guess it was more important for me to have a better quality of life or whatever it might be. Cool. You did it. It's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, right? So you might as well go for it. Give it a shot. You're going to be a better human being for actually giving it a giving it a whirl. You never regret the risks you took. Never. You never say, oh, I wish I didn't take that risk. Yeah, totally. Again, back, back the deathbed talk. You nobody ever says like, oh, you know, I wish I wouldn't have quit my job to go see if I could build this company or do something else. You know, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. Okay. So the hacker thing's really interesting to me too, because I was reading your book while my website got hacked and I was like, I hate hackers. And I'm reading, you love hackers. You figured out a way to not only use hackers for good, but I mean, in general, technology for good. And this is interesting to me because in the beginning of the year, I started this podcast season off with like an episode on unplugging and how we need to be more in person. But you have figured out a way to use technology to like let people see, give people arms. And now you're working on something else that I'd love for you to talk about. And just your overall view of technology as being a conduit of good for the world. Technology is just a tool right? Like anything else. You know, I think if you would go back in time, think about things that happened that gave people the power to actually do things, right? The light bulb. Like, exactly. Electricity. Computer. Right. It's the computer. Electricity came before that. So just see it as such, you know? Like, I I think that unplugging, I, I will kvetch and bitch just like the next person about the fact that we've become a society of people that are constantly looking down at screens and not up and what's possible. But if you see it, you're like, all right, hang on a second. I'm just going to see this as a, as a tool. It's just, it's just leverage. It's just a hammer. And I'm going to use that to actually do some good in the world. Then, you know, just recontextualize it. I think at the end of the day, Anything in this world can be recontextualized to do good. It's a brave statement. And I'm sure you're going to get emails from people that are like, no, what about this? Right. You can you can take me to task on it if you want. But everything has the ability that if channeled in the right way, can actually do some good. You can email Mick directly. <laughs> so what's not impossible labs working on now? They just finished up a project that allows deaf people to experience music. And next, they're using a device most of us use every day to help solve food insecurity. So I want to ask you about what's next, but I learned a little bit about what's next while mm -hmm. I was in the water. And it's interesting because it uses cell phones. Hunger, not impossible. So everything that we do here focuses and starts our design. We have a design process. And the first part of the design process is recognizing something that's absurd, something that you see and you're like, wait a second, that's not that's not right. It shouldn't be that way. Then reacting, rebelling, revolting against that and come hell or high water, whatever you have to do you figure out a way to solve that. And we used we use technology as a way to solve that, to create some kind of better quality of life or some kind of accessibility or solution. So one of the things that, and we're working right now in a myriad of different places, like the things that you're seeing right over here, these are devices that allow the, that we created a way for the deaf to experience music with using their skin as the eardrum, as opposed to their ear to get a signal to the brain by 
we broke music into its separate parts, different separate channels, and then projected that to different parts of the skin. So your ankles would experience guitar, your wrist drums, your chest vocals, the bass. Your sp- so that's something that we're super excited about. And that's going to transcend and transform how music is experienced, you know, for everybody. Everybody five years from now will, this is my bold prediction, everybody five years from now will be going to shows or at home feeling and hearing music, not just hearing music. Like, it's kind of like, why would you only drive in first gear? What does it feel like for you when you put this on as a not deaf person? We'll have to have you try it out so you can talk about it. I'm so interested. It feels transcendent. You feel like the music is in you because it truly is. It's vibrating in your skin to your brain. So you can, quote, hear the music through your skin. And the brain, the brain is this fantastic neuroplastic organ that it can learn how to understand how to see without the eyes working, how to hear without the ears working, how to smell. You smell and hear and see and taste through your brain. These are just the eyes and ears and and nose and mouth are vehicles to get those signals to the brain. But you can get there other ways. And it's been proven time and time. This book that you see right here by a friend of mine, Eric Weimer, he's this incredible blind climber. Mountain climbers climbed all seven summits. He's just a badass. We did this demo at South by Southwest where we put this thing called the WeCab on him. And it was a camera on a little headband that was connected to a little electric plate. He put it in his mouth and I would put a card on the table in front of him and he could read the card by the signal being projected on his tongue and he was able to read the card. People thought it was like a magic trick. So we passed the cards out to the audience and they came up and did it. And they were like, oh my God, it's amazing. So that's a perfect example. You don't see with your eyes, you see with your brain. The eyes are a vehicle to that. So we're just realizing now different ways that the brain has the the potential to see or smell or touch. And so Music Not Impossible is about crafting that way, a new way for the brain to experience music. And it's like as a human, as a, as a, the human species, that's never really been done before. So our brains will evolve and grow the more and more that that's done. We'll have that ability to, to start to understand music just through vibrations and not necessarily through, quote, sound. So I didn't even know about music not impossible because I thought I was asking you about hunger not impossible. That, well, I, I, you know what? I got distracted. Okay. So Project Hunger. So it's called Hunger Not Impossible. Hunger Not Impossible. Music Not Impossible started because we saw how the deaf were experiencing music and we said, that does, we, let's figure out a better way. That's absurd. Let's change that. And then we came up with Music Not Impossible. Um, Hunger Not Impossible came out of us recognizing the fact that, that there's close to 50 million people in this country, in the United States, that struggle to put food on the table every day. What's that number? Close to 50 million. So imagine... 50 million people aren't sure where their next meal is going to come from. That's crazy, right? So we said, that's absurd. Let's change it. And so we went and we helped one, help many. We chose our one and it was homeless youth. And we, so we went down. There's a, a group down the corner from around our office called Safe Place for Youth. And we started interviewing kids down there who were homeless in Venice Beach. And do you know the one thing that they prize most, more than anything in life? is a cell phone. And we said, all right, we weren't expecting that. And so we figured out this ridiculously simple way that kids 
that a charity, Safe Place for Youth or Covenant House or United Way or YMCA or Boys and Girls Club, doesn't matter. They input the cell phone numbers of their constituents, of the kids or the veterans or whoever it is, or the, whoever the nonprofit is, serves. And it sends them a simple text message that like Uber or Airbnb or Lyft, it gives them a geoproximate solution to where they are that allows them to go and get a meal that's paid for by the charity that the, that the kid or the vet or whoever gets to walk in and claim at a restaurant and they get to walk in and claim the meal and walk out. So the charity or the school or the church or whoever gets to serve the, their population that they're trying to serve and they don't have to like, actively be doing like face to face or making food or basically starting a restaurant in their in their in the charity which is all these other costs and and problems the restaurants get to get business sent to them and it's discounted but they get to make money when they wouldn't otherwise and then the kid gets to walk in and claim a meal and not have that that the guilt or that shame of having to like beg for the meal or ask someone to pay for the meal or, Hey, mister outside, like, could you, could you do something? They get to walk in and just like every other kid, they get to walk up and claim a meal to go pick it up and leave. So you've got this incredible, simple, ridiculously simple text-based ecosystem that's getting kids fed. And so we're hyper excited about it because not only are we going to be able to to deploy this in the most ridiculously simple way, but everybody wins. The charity wins because they're taking care of their kids or their vets or whoever they're taking care of. The restaurants win because they're making a couple bucks. And then the person that they're serving just gets to eat that day. So they don't have to worry about that. And they can think about the next thing for them. And the crazy thing about it is almost every single kid we met with and was part of the program has said, oh, sweet, now I can worry about school. Now I can worry about getting a job. Now I can worry about my future. So it wasn't like, sweet, I'm going to go to the beach and just mess around today. It was, now I get to think about my future now. So you just take care of that one basic Maslow hierarchy of need, which is food and water, which is more important than shelter, right? You can live in a mansion with no food for probably five to seven days before you're dead. You can live on the streets for the rest of your life, but if you're fed every single day, you, there's a better chance for you to live. And I'm being dramatic, but that's that's why we're so excited about Hunger Not Impossible. It's not just in LA. No, we're gonna be deploying this across the country. Wow, how did you find the restaurants? The restaurants, just anybody, any restaurant that has online ordering, that's that's the only kind of criteria. They are, if, they, if you can order online, then they can tap into our system. How can people help and get involved? So we're just, this is just going to gone big for us. So this you is going to launch though in December. This is going to launch in De November, December. Okay. And what we're going to do is craft away. This is a perfect example of commit and figure it out. As I speak to you right now, this is not figured out. So I'm committing to something right now that I'm going to have to leave and go and tell my team, hey guys, we just, we just made a commitment to 7 billion people on Shelby's podcast and we got to pull this off. <laughs> That's fantastic. But we want people to be able to go, they can go onto our website and in that spirit of help one, help many, we want them to be able to choose a kid and feed a kid for a year. Feed them one time a day, two times a day, whatever, but to feed a kid for a year. And if you're, and then we talked a little bit about this beforehand, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, I'm not sure what I'm doing with my life or what my purpose is or if I should keep my job or I should quit and do something else, 
first of all, I go for it. Like whatever you think you shouldn't do, go do it. Because like we said earlier, you're never going to look back and regret the risks that you took. But what if you also said, all right, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life right now. I don't know what my calling is. I don't know what, you know, how I can, how I can support a bigger purpose. What if I just chose one kid and fed one kid for the year? What if me and a friend, maybe, maybe you're listening to this and, and you don't have a tremendous amount of additional money to throw at something great, then let's get five, five friends together and let's feed one kid for a year. Like it's, it's one of those things that you can wake up and know like, all right, I don't have all my shit figured out and I'm going through my struggles, but at least I know that I'm caring for another human being right now and I'm solving a problem, a massive problem fundamental issue for another human being. I think that kind of puts things in perspective a little bit for you. Yeah. Nick, thank you so much. I mean, you're doing so many great things that you started out of nothing. I think if people go into the new year and they're like trying to make resolution, like, no, just listen to this podcast with Mick and take his advice. Start somewhere. Any advice on, on how to find that purpose? <sighs> Finding your purpose is two things. You have to listen and you have to be patient. You have to listen to yourself and what motivates you, how you feel when you experience certain things and whether or not that's a feeling that you want to either stray away from or, or gravitate towards. And then be patient if you don't have that. If you don't have this, you don't wake up knowing exactly what your purpose is. Be patient. It's a journey. The fact that you're on the journey and the fact that you're contemplating what your purpose is, that's you have to start there. But just be aware. Be aware. Be patient. But also be diligent, you know, and and be be persistent on on the search. Nick, thank you so much. This has been an incredible interview, and I think a lot of people are going to be supercharged for the new year. Be aware, be patient, and you'll find your purpose. Mick was on a completely different career track when he found out about Tempt and he decided to do everything he could to help him, which led to the iRider. People like Mick Ebling and his crew, they're changing the world one person, one project at a time. Mick, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for spreading the not impossible story and teaching us all that nothing is impossible forever. You've definitely made me feel more empowered. And I imagine you've made a lot of listeners feel more empowered too. Thanks also to your crew, Adam, Jordan, and the Not Impossible Labs team. Thanks for taking me out surfing in Venice Beach. And thanks for making sure other people have the resources to take your work and use it for even more good. This podcast is produced by REI with the help from Manny Fassler and Chelsea Davis. Tune in week after next for a conversation with Whole30 founder, Melissa Hartwig-Urban. We talk about not only how she started the Whole30, but what keeps her grounded and tips for how to navigate this holiday season. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. The reviews are hilarious and heartwarming. I love them. Keep them coming. And remember, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas.